Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Welcome to Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, an RTPI and Content with Purpose podcast series exploring the intrinsic role of planners in tackling climate change, paving the way to a sustainable, viable and vibrant future. In this episode, we're taking a close-up look at healthy placemaking, the idea that we can develop healthier, happier communities by putting sustainability and well-being at the heart of urban design, and that these sustainable communities will in future be able to actually help in the transition to a net zero carbon world, while also cope with the effects of the climate crisis that are already baked in. But there are some big issues in the way of making all of that a reality. Creating healthier places is clearly really important, but how much does it actually cost? Is there a risk that without massive political will and government support, it'll become the preserve of new developments aimed at those with the deepest pockets and create a kind of climate change gentrification that leaves the more deprived areas behind. Well, to explore some of these issues and hopefully come up with some pragmatic responses, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Nicholas Boyce-Smith, founder and director of Create Streets, and Ben Llewellyn, who's London's planning and engagement manager for the Environment Agency. Uh, Nicholas, if I could turn to you first, let's have a, a little bit of context. What does Create Streets actually do? That's a very good question. I better check with the team before I, uh, before I, before I answer that one. No. So um, uh, we are a social enterprise with an associated charity. Um, at our heart, we do research into the relationship between place and well-being and physical health, the, 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 the weight with which we tread upon the planet, sustainability, uh, people's propensity to support new housing, where people are happy, where they wish to be. That's, if you like, at the heart of what we do. Um, to bring that to life, we then work with, mainly with neighbourhood and community groups, so actually increasingly with, with landowners, with councils, developers as well, to try and create or to steward existing places to be, I think this sentence still works, um, you know, healthy and happy and sustainable and purposeful for people who, who live and, and work there. And I think it's probably fair to add you know, we, we have quite a strong point of view and series of points of views on what makes for good and happy places. Um, we have quite a strong view on sort of how the planning system works and how, and how it should and shouldn't. So that's that's what we do in, in a few sentences. All right, then. So let's let's dig into both of those bits then. So first of all, then, what is a healthy place? Well, I mean, I think the key thing, I, I'm going to answer this, but before I answer it, I'll just say one thing, which is that um, I think the confidence with which we can answer that has been utterly transformed over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, I'm just trying to find, yes, yeah, so, so thanks to these things, and you know, let it be told to those who are not watching, I'm holding up my, my mobile phone. Um, thanks to mobile phones, thanks to big data, thanks to the spatial precision with which we've got, for example, evidence on mental health or physical health. Um, there's just been an absolute tsunami of, of research and studies with you know some degree of big data confidence, very high levels in some, um, into, and now I'm gonna answer your question, uh, where people might walk more where they might perhaps more likely to speak to their neighbours, where they might breathe cleaner air. And although it varies 
you know, up to a point, because you know we're not controlled by our environment. We're not robots, you know, with a robot, you know, with a certain environment deterministically telling us what we can and can't do. A, a fairly similar pattern consistently emerges across time and across place and across continent and across culture. So, you know, uh, a standard block pattern, uh, streets in which it's easy to walk or to cycle, uh, a mix of uses. So we don't have, you know, housing over there and shops over there and business over there and schools over there. Um, in which it's natural and easy, you know, to 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 link those journeys together, uh, and at sufficient density. We often talk about gentle density um, uh, to you know support some degree of public transport. Um, that, that that those sorts of networks, are, you know, greenery throughout, gentle density, a clear block pattern, safe, uh, you know, clearly private and clearly public spaces, uh, and actually places that people find attractive. Uh, and again, without wishing to be overly deterministic. It's quite predictable the types of places where people uh, feel at home in the world. So most of us don't, on the whole, want to be next to a huge, great, featureless glass wall going on for you know ad infinitum. But something which is more humane, which has got variety in a pattern, some degree of coherent complexity. Those types of places tend to be not just more popular, but actually also ones in which we're more likely to spend time, more likely to pop in and speak to our neighbours. But there you go. I could, I could go on for far too long, but there, there it is in a few nutshells. Well, that, but that gives us a good gist and we'll be able to come on more into what makes an unhealthy place as well as we go on. But the other element that I just wanted to bring in really briefly is the fact that, that you believe it's possible to create all those things for people and also be kind to the environment at the same time. Yeah, well, it mustn't be overly sort of glass half full. Um, I, but I do genuinely think there is a virtuous circle, a virtuous feedback loop. And interesting, I, I think I'd disagree with what you said earlier about the you know, risk of creating uh, only environmentally sustainable places for, for richer people. Um, clearly, that's um, true at one level, but the, you know, we, we tend to think about them. I mean, I'm sure Ben doesn't, but you know, many, many commentaries uh, in the media tend to think about uh, sustainability merely at the level of the energy efficiency of the building, you know, whether it's oil or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, some other form of sustainable heating, and you know how well insulated it is. Now, I don't for a moment say that's not important. It absolutely is. I don't. I'm not. I'm not disparaging that. But actually, you know, the form factor of the building, a terraced house, is a heck of a lot easier to to heat than a detached home. Um, and also, actually, once you go above about five or six stories, uh, the uh, the energy use per meter cube tends to go up astronomically quickly in, in, in studies in a series of cities. So you know, the the, the form of the building, uh, how we move around our settlements, are we walking or getting in a cycle to do our daily needs or do we always have to jump in a car that really really matters to our carbon footprint um how long a building lasts really matters the the embodied energy in a, in a victorian house would drive a car about 10 times around the world if we knock down an inefficient victorian house and put up the most energy efficiency new house to replace it we basically lose about 100 years of embodied carbon so we sort of we're sort of way behind before we even start so we have to think about longevity resilience flexibility and movement as well as, uh, as, as, as energy and use uh, and energy efficiency. Planning for tomorrow's environment. Produced by Content With Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. This episode is sponsored by Chapman Taylor Architects. Chapman Taylor is a global practice of award-winning architects, master planners and interior designers, known for designing places and buildings that are both creative and successful. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk Planning for Tomorrow's Environment Produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute
there's lots of really interesting things that uh, that we can ex- expand on as we're as we're going through the conversation. But I want to bring Ben Llewellyn into it now. So Ben, you're uh, London's Environment Planning and Engagement Manager at the Environment Agency. So what what does that actually entail as a role? So as a role, me and my teams uh, seem to work at the city scale uh, with stakeholders to work on policies, master plans, and strategies to. Uh, deliver sustainable places. So whether that's around climate adaptation, whether it's about flood risk, whether it's about biodiversity, um, we work in the busy policy forum and and, um, stakeholder landscape to try and improve London's environment through the built environment and placemaking. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit then about well-being, urban design and sustainability. Have we actually got some examples of where that's actually been put into practice in London? Thankfully, we are seeing more large scale developers um, place more importance on access to green and blue spaces in placemaking and in their master planning. Um, I think that's incredibly important because the pandemic showed all of us the positive impact that access to nature has on our physical health and our well-being. Uh, the science is there. It's been there for years and it's, it's finally coming into play. Um, so two of the key growth areas in London, um, so Peabody at Thamesmead have created a living in the landscape, which is a strategic approach to managing green infrastructure across their estate. And that's really important because it will benefit the existing communities there, but also the future communities. Um, the area is earmarked for 8,000 new homes, but there is an existing town there. And what this strategy is seeking to do, which we worked with them on my team, uh, supported on the steering group, and that is really weaving in the green and blue infrastructure into placemaking so it's fit for purpose for today and tomorrow's climate. Um, and also in the rural docks, uh, that area has been earmarked for between 30 and 40,000 new homes. So, you know, huge scale regeneration there. And and just in terms of what that's actually going to look like, because um, Nicholas was talking earlier about gentle density, is that the kind of scale of development that's going to go in? Because 30, 40,000 homes is a huge number in a relatively small space are we talking about tower blocks or are we talking about lower rise how's it going to work so in the rural docks where they're looking at 30 to forty thousand new homes it's a mix of um of density but because of a good public transport links they are pushing for higher density there so the gla and and newham um but while they're pushing for those higher density developments they are placing their unique water spaces and the thames and the docks at the front and centre of every generation. So they're really focusing on improving access to those green and blue spaces because they recognise the wellbeing benefits for the communities and the future communities. Um, they're really focusing on improving the access to, to nature and riverside paths to enable those communities who are currently cut off from a river and cut off from a dog space to, to use them for wellbeing, for running, for walking, uh, for you know walking the dog all of these principles are underpinned in all the master planning um to to make the place sustainable even with you know towards a higher end of density of new development okay so nicholas let's bring you in there because gentle density is a real key plank in what you want to see isn't it yes and i, I both agree with ben and i think perhaps a mild point of caution I don't know the sites in deep detail, so I wouldn't disagree with Ben. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare. Um, so no, you know, Ben's absolutely right to stress that word access. It's access to green space that in a way matters more than the presence of the green space itself. Um, there's a nice little mini study on this. Most New Yorkers, most Manhattanites, 
don't visit Central Park in any given week, simply because they don't, you know, they don't live nearby it, they don't work by it, and their daily quotidian route doesn't take them through it. Um, it's access to greenery, walking through it, seeing it, that has the most impact on our personal mental well-being. The fact that it's there is, you know, on the whole good for sort of air quality, but other than that, it won't necessarily have a background impact unless we're actually experiencing it and moving through it. Um, so Ben's absolutely right on that. I think my nervousness um, is that our mental health and the health of the city is a function of lots of things. Greenery is absolutely one of them. But actually, you know, we've sort of been here before. Um, quite a lot of the post-war development uh, actually increased the amount of green space uh, and decreased the well-being of the people living uh, in those developments because they did lots of other things wrong. They had no clear private space. They, they had non-safe routes to their front door. So, for example, you know, while it's absolutely true that the vast majority of research does show that presence of the greenery in the urban realm is basically good for us, um, if we think someone's going to jump out of us, jump out at us from it as we go to our front door, it is not good for our personal well-being. We're actually nervous as we go to the front door. So it, it, sometimes it isn't. And it isn't if it's badly managed or if it makes us makes us scared. I'm not saying that would be true in either of these cases. I'm not, I'm not talking about, about, about uh, these developments. So how we ensure that it's greenery led throughout the urban realm um, and that we're still able perhaps to have access to back gardens or communal gardens with a small number of people using it, how we make sure we're not in small flats off long double-loaded corridors, which again is very provably linked to knowing our neighbours less well and feeling more stressed in our daily life. So I think we do need to be careful, and I'm not saying Ben is doing this, just to be clear, <laughs> you know, we do need to be careful to make sure that we don't make a god of one element of well-being and health in the mental in the, in the, the built environment at the expense of all the others. And I do sometimes think that in some... Yeah, the debate, you know, the, the, the data on greenery is, 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 Ben is absolutely right, it's very well established. It's been increasingly well established since the 1980s. There was a very famous study led by Roger Ulrich that sort of started this, the floodgates of research on this. Um, some of the other areas, I think it's probably fair to say, are, are less well established, certainly haven't been studied for as long. So I think there's a danger that they play second or third or fourth or no fiddle at all in comparison to the sort of God of putting more greenery in the, in the urban realm, which I completely support, by the way. Well, let's bring Ben back into it there, because you were nodding away at various bits of, of what Nicholas was saying there. Is, is a good balance being struck in lots of new developments now in a way that it wasn't perhaps 10, 20 years ago? I, mean, I, I personally think it is. And, and the other angle I'd come at things from is, you know, we are seeing the climate changing now. It's, it's the impact of climate change isn't in the future. You know, we have had heat waves, floods and droughts all in the last 12 months. Um, our research from the Thames Estuary 2100 plan is showing that sea levels are rising faster now than they were 10 years ago. And that, that's quite a small period of time. So the climate is changing. And the other angle these green infrastructure plays is for the climate adaptation measures. Um, you know, the, the green infrastructure will help our uh, public space be sponges when when there's thunderstorms and it will help reduce the impact of flooding it will offer cool spaces and refuge during heat waves and you know those climate shocks when people are in poorly designed places without adaptation measures do have a detrimental well-being impact on those people who experience them so the greenery also has to offer the climate adaptation to buffer those climate shocks because we will see these climate events more frequently um, you know, there's so much uh, studies behind the psychological impact of people who have been flooded and, you know, they're made homeless for months and months because, um, you know, the damage takes so long to repair. So, yes, it's about well-being and the pleasantness of the, the physical environment. 
but our places do need to be multifunctional to, to protect people from the impacts of a changing climate, which we are seeing today. I mean, Auckland and Sydney are both underwater today as we speak. Um, these events, unfortunately, will happen more frequently. So we do need to design the built environment with tomorrow's climate in mind. Okay, so bearing that in mind, how much of a difference does it make whether big new developments like the, the, the Peabody estate that you were talking about in Thamesmead there, are they, whether they are kept in private ownership for individuals to own their own flats or whether they're kept in public ownership, uh, which are then managed by an authority as the local council or whoever. Does that actually have a big impact on the way that planners can actually make sure that their kind of designs that they want to see in place in those environments actually get in there? So for me, based on the experience where my team are only ever advising uh, we're, we're only ever advising, we're not building these places, we're, we're supporting on environment and sustainability objectives. Um, it, it's always a much easier conversation when a whoever is developing, whether it's a public body or, or, or private, um, are taking a custodian approach and a long-term vision. And then that's when the green infrastructure and the climate adaptation measures and the mitigation measures, you get payback and value for investment. And what happens if they don't have a custodial viewpoint? They just want to make some money. Well, then it is more challenging. Um, and it is more challenging on smaller sites. Of course it is, because the opportunity for interventions are limited. But what I will say is with biodiversity net gain coming in as mandatory from next year, um, from the Environment Act, with local nature recovery strategies coming in from the Environment Act, planners will have more tools available to them to look at those not not quite master plan scale sites, the medium scale sites, and to actually um, deliver the, the biodiversity again and, and green infrastructure. And with Schedule 3 of the Floods and Water Management Act coming in, mandating SUDs, again, that's another tool which will be available to planners to help make sure that these places at whatever scale and whatever the ownership um, will be sustainable but it's it's a challenge it's a challenge even when people are taking a custodian approach because uh, viability and competing pressures on land is always going to be an issue and an environment can be designed out as, as we've seen you know very often over the years absolutely so nicholas you're, you're obviously campaigning and lobbying for creating better environments for people to actually live in have you noticed a shift at all over the course of how long you've been doing this for have attitudes changed with both planners and indeed developers uh, yes without a shadow of doubt um uh, i think the the biodiversity net gain which is also now uh, required in the national planning policy framework uh, alongside uh, an expectation that new streets will have trees in them i'm a big fan of street trees um that is very clearly changing uh, the behavior of developers so some of the landowners and developers we've spoken to worked with you know are very clearly focused on that and i can think of without even sort of scratching very far down into what counts as my brain, I can immediately think of a couple of sites which we've worked on, you know, where uh, the, uh, the, the, the the urban design, which actually we ended up partly doing, you know, in, in, integrates a hedge that was there beforehand and integrate, you know, main, keeps the trees that would otherwise, without a shadow of doubt, have been cut down. Um, uh, so I think we can definitely see that's already having an effect. Um, I think the real win... Uh, and I, th I think John, I think Ben was sort of hinting at this. The real win actually will less be about the design of new places, because of course, you know, fifty or well, thirty years from now, most of the homes that we'll be living in have already been built. Um, 
the real win will be in greening up our existing streets and squares and public spaces. Um, we've actually got a report on this, which I, now that now that you asked this question, I'll, I'll plug. It's called Greening Up. It's coming soon, and you should all read it. Um, uh, that wasn't premeditated, actually, but um, um, I didn't know the conversation would go, go in this quite the direction. But um, you know, there are a series of yeah, it's quite I mean, of barriers which make it much harder to plant trees, put in sustainable drainage, often known as suds, into existing streets. There are some great examples and some lovely stuff we were looking at in Cardiff quite recently, um, but. You know, concerns about maintenance costs, concerns, and in some of the rules about highway maintenance. Sometimes, actually, tree officers themselves actually very often conspire to make it far harder to regreen, to green up our existing streets, and should be the case. So, although I think the rules are changing quite fast, um, and expectations are changing on new places, which is great. The next battle, and arguably a much bigger battle, will be in greening up our existing our existing towns. And my hope is that twenty years from now. Uh, as we walk around London or Bristol or Birmingham, wherever it might be, we will have regreened our existing streets with street trees, sustainable drainage, low-level drainage, and many of the, the pleasures and benefits we currently get are, will, will be added to with with uh, important you know benefits for the environment and for the the, uh, the durability of those streets. Okay, so one of the one of the elements I think that's really key to to try and be clear on is how much support there is actually coming from the very top end of government because there seems to be a degree of agreement uh, between what you want to do what Ben wants to do what lots of people in the planning world want to do um, but not necessarily that the mood music from the very top end of government chimes in with that is is that an unfair thing to say I think that's probably unfair actually I mean Ben's a public official if I understand correctly so presumably he's he's uh, you know working within the framework of what he uh-huh. should I'll let Ben answer that bit so for, for instance well the, the reason why I'm saying that Therese Coffey who's environment secretary was giving evidence to the Lord's Industry and Regulation Committee the other day and said while it's unacceptable to allow water companies to dump sewage into rivers when it rains heavily there's not going to be any government investment to help pay for the infrastructure to make that happen and while water companies will be expected to have ended the practice by 2050, there's not going to be any immediate pressure on them to do so. So they could continue doing that for another 20, 25 years. It's the kind of the, the mood music from that sort of end of the very senior politicians that sometimes seems at odds with what the people on the ground are actually trying to achieve. I can only speak for the conversations I've had. So you, know, you didn't mention it when you introduced me. So I, I have another sort of unpaid not a, a hat, which is I, I advised the government's office for place. And I used to chair the, the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission when we did our report a few years ago in how we make better and healthier and more beautiful places. You know, I, I think I can safely say, you know, on the record, as it were, that all my off the record and on the record conversations with Secretary of States then and subsequently about issues such as planting street trees and getting biodiversity net gain as a key plank of the national planning policy framework were really easy. I mean, I, d- I didn't feel like I was pushing water uphill at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, so, you know, but purely based on my own conversations, and I said I've not spoken to Theresa Coffey, I don't expect to anytime soon, you know, but ba- based on conversations I've had within with DLAC officials and ministers, uh, I, I don't sense any uh, strong philosophical disagreements on this. Maybe that's being naive, but that, that's that's my perspective. Well, no, but that's, good. That's, that's a good thing to hear. That's a good thing to hear. And Ben, obviously, you know, you're as... As Nicholas says, you're a, you're a public official, so you're probably slightly hard-binded on the things that you can say on these things. But in general terms, are you getting to be able to do the stuff that you want to be able to do? I, th- I think so, absolutely. Um, with the Environment Act finally going through uh, and, and being enacted, and then these changes making their way into um, the National Planning Policy Framework, but already, because we've known they were coming, they've been finding their way into local plans and, you know, the London plan and 
up in Manchester uh, and other urban conurbations, there are real innovative approaches to encouraging and, and, and mandating urban greening for the multiple benefits that we're seeing. And it, it hasn't been a hard sell. When, when my teams are talking to other planners working, you know, either at local authorities or, or with the GLA, they're, they're way ahead of the game. They're not waiting for it to be mandated. There is a collective will because of the evidence of the benefits that all these um, environmental enhancements, climate adaptation and mitigation measures will bring to a place. And it's about the benefit to people and the environment. So. Um, it's it's not a hard sell. It's just the, cha the challenge will be implementation. What does good implementation looks like? Because it is a step change that we're seeing. Just to add to that, because I think I think it's important. So, and I, I would say, I mean, we must have run heaven knows how many dozens, if not hundreds, of workshops and focus groups, you know, over the years. Uh, you know, certainly, high majority of the time, they're not all. I want to come back to them in a few seconds. High majority of the time, very strong public support for planting street trees, greening up. You know development which has got a, a high green element to it i would i think there is an important caveat to that though which is if people have got experience and some do of green space within the public realm being very badly managed being dog fouled being dangerous being unpleasant uh you know they don't they don't want it greened up and i can think of a specific development we were working on in southeast london where we sort of naively proposed planting a couple of trees and a bit of wild grass and we got a very clear steer no because it won't be looked after and actually when you went and walked around the estate these people were living near actually it was not an unreasonable perspective so i think that concern that councils have and that some members of the public have about how it will be maintained whether it will be safe is not one we we can shy away from because it is there and, and rightly that it's there so nicholas is there somewhere that really kind of exemplifies genuinely how to do this well is there a place you can point at and say that's what we should be looking at as a good example as as a new place or as an old place either well i think uh, well let me let me do both then <laughs> so i mean you know some of the uh, bits of uh, victorian inner london i think get the trade off about right in terms of access to personal space walkable streets but also a high enough density so you don't need to jump in a car every 5 minutes you know pimlico bits of west london some of the bits of northeast london and they they get that right of some of the recent developments in london i think the uh, estate at the end of the portobello road is pretty good i think myatt's fields in lambeth is pretty good uh, and when they get it best it's when they've managed to sort of push down on parking uh, and put in a clear block pattern uh, with streets which are well street treed and, uh, and a joy to walk along um, at the risk of sort of walking into sort of you know a bit of a cliche you know without a shadow of doubt the best at scale large development done over the last two generations uh, is uh, is Poundbury in Dorset um, that's one that often always annoys architects and often annoys planners um, but it's just that the data is just incredibly strong uh, it's a much higher density than any house builder has ever built uh, it's about a third affordable housing it's selling at about a 25 to 35% value premium. Uh, it's got one job per household created. Um, you, know, it, you know, however you come at it, whatever your politics, it's quite, it's quite hard to argue with it. And again, actually, I think Ben earlier was talking about a custodianship approach. You know, clearly the landowner there does have the advantage of sort of essentially holding the land in a sort of 13th century book value, which helps. Um, but that's essentially where we need to get the planning and development and design system is one whereby you don't need to have this sort of, you know, extraordinarily advantageous land ownership structure to be able to create beautiful new places. OK, so, Ben, it's fairly straightforward then to get the, the places that we all want. We just need to get the king involved. 
That's not quite what I'm saying. As you <laughs> but I'm saying the opposite, which is we've got to find it so it isn't. You don't need his involvement. Well, anyway. Exactly. I mean, but this is the point, isn't it? That that, that that we can see what the good places are, but often the pressures to to pack as many houses into an area as possible for the developer to get their money back and for local authorities to meet the targets that are set on them by government means it's very difficult for them to necessarily achieve the things that they want to. Is is that fair, Ben? I think it is, and bringing the climate back into play as well, it's it's all those competing pressures on a finite amount of space, isn't it? So as well as for the homes and, um, and businesses and the roads and transport infrastructure, we do need all of our spaces to be playing a, a climate function as well and to act as a sponge and provide greening. So it's, it's only going to get more complicated, um, but it can be achieved if you look at what we all achieved with the olympics and the regeneration around stratford i know that is quite high density towards the town center but the improvements to the river corridor in and around the stadium and the health and well-being benefits to those existing and new communities um will will be much worth the uh, you know tenfold the investment that was put into improving those places so um, when we're not going to get Olympics every time either, but it, it shows it can be done, in my opinion, when different agencies and actors come together. We have a very odd planning system compared to most other countries, and historically to how we used to regulate the built environment, with very unclear quality asks. Um, uh, now it is getting better now, I think, but it is quite possible, indeed it is normal, for different developers or landowners competing to develop and buy land to essentially outbid each other, either in terms of the density they'll put in, or things that they think will add cost but not value to be, to be stripped out. Um, hopefully we're moving to a situation, I think this is a big change coming, particularly for young planners listening, where we've got far clearer quality asks via the new National Model Design Code, density, expectations of regreening. So if you like, the baseline is just set higher. Now, sometimes that will create challenges in areas of very low demand and low value. I think that we shouldn't sort of pretend otherwise. But in much of the country, just a clearer quality asks, if you like, allows us to set a better baseline. Okay, so... We're running out of time. So what I really want to kind of wrap up with then is our key takeaways. The one thing that you want is if a planner is listening to this and they've listened through to the conversation, that they walk away with, with a, a main thought in their head. So, Ben, what should planners really be thinking about when it comes to creating healthy places? I think the main point I'd like to make is we are seeing the impacts of a changing climate now. Climate adaptation shouldn't be a bolt-on to design or a tick box afterwards. Um, once the place has already been designed, it, it should be front and centre of placemaking if we are going to design places for healthy communities that are well, um, you know, for the well-being, for the access to nature, for the recreation, for the climate adaptation services it, it's a must do and, and that really needs to be at every planner's uh, at the forefront of every planner's mind wherever you're working okay nicholas what's the the main thing you want uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast to take away with them i'm going to cheat and say two very quick things but i'll make them quick i promise the first would be for existing places work with colleagues in highways and the urban tree officer to plant street trees in existing streets. The data on the well-being and sustainability consequence of that is so strong in so many cities and countries that it's as close as you get to a no-brainer. There's no real no-brainer to life, but that's as close as you get. Second thing, very quickly, would be there are big changes already underway with requirements for national local design codes through the National Planning Policy Framework, uh, and far more requirement of that coming through the new levelling up and regen bill. Uh, get ahead of that 
and, and be much more confident and comfortable working with neighbourhoods and communities to create and set really clear quality asks for beautiful, sustainable, walkable places. So many planners have got used to being very reactive and responsive to developers. There's a role for planners actually to be more strategic and bring the democracy forward and set a much clearer quality ask in the local plan rather than just responding to what the next developer brings along. Okay, Nicholas Boysmith and Ben Llewellyn, it's been a, a real pleasure having a chat with you. Thank you both ever so much for your time and, and so much food for thought. I hope some of the key players in government get to hear this and they can take on board the idea of properly supporting planners to, to put in place a lot of these ideas because the idea that good planning can create spaces that won't just be beneficial for residents in terms of how they feel about living there, but also beneficial in terms of creating places that can actually actively participate in heading towards net zero and making life more comfortable in coping with the effects of climate change that are already baked in. Well, that, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? If you've missed any of the other podcasts in this series, you can, of course, catch up by searching online for RTPI Planning for Tomorrow's Environment. And you'll also find a whole bunch of useful materials, including a film documentary and video clips that you can use to inform and inspire your colleagues and the next generation of planners. Because we all want to create a world for our children and grandchildren that's healthy, socially inclusive, and environmentally sustainable. Beautiful, even. Something worth planning for, isn't it? Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Smith, and this has been a Content with Purpose production. Thanks once again to the sponsor of this episode, Chapman Taylor Architects. You can read, watch, and learn more about their work and about the full Planning for Tomorrow's Environment digital series by going to planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.